Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest in our series of Empire Podcast spoiler specials. And this one is dedicated to the latest slice of thundering Chris Hemsworth and Rooster Brothers action available exclusively on Netflix. It is, of course, Extraction, the movie that puts the action in Extraction. And joining me to talk about the... Uh, the exploits of Tyler Rake, Rake-related or otherwise, are two of my finest rakish colleagues of such lethal cunning. Helen O'Hara. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. good. I'm very good. And uh, Benjamin Travis, how are you, sir? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I'm good. Uh, I feel very inspired by this film in which Chris Hemsworth beats up literal children. <laughs> Hurrah! Oh, wait. Finally, finally, we're beginning to strip away Ben's... <laughs> Uh, all the surface of Ben and just reveal the dark heart underneath. Uh, yes, otherwise known as Chris. Well, Chris Hemsworth kills everybody in this movie, pretty much. So, but, uh, uh, you know, children, he's an he's, he's equal opportunities killer in this movie. He doesn't mm. care whether you're a cop, whether you're a soldier, whether you're a good guy, a bad guy, man, woman, hellboy. He doesn't care. He'll kill everybody. Uh, by the way, that's a massive spoiler. So I should say that this is a spoiler podcast. Of course, you know that you have subscribed to our spoiler specials, for which we are eternally grateful. Uh, but if you are listening to this and you have somehow not seen Extraction, it's very simple. Just stop listening to us. Hide the to your nearest Netflix. Check it out. Chilling is entirely optional. Uh, and then come back here, press play, and then we will resume with the big old spoilers. Okay, good. I think they've gone. Now we can get on with it. But before we get into the movie, let's hear from the man who made it. First time director, Sam Hargrave, uh, who is stepping up to the directorial plate with this movie. After Sterling work on a lot of Marvel movies over the last few years, including, of course, Avengers Endgame and some Captain America movies. And uh, Interesting enough, I, we, we discovered this week, because Russo did an Avengers Endgame watch-along, that he plays Cap in the sequence where Cap battles himself in Endgame. Whoa! Uh, he, is, he is Cap's stunt double, and his younger brother was the other Cap. Whoa! So, is he America's ass, or is his brother America's ass? Which one? They are both America's ass. They <laughs> take one cheek each. I, I believe it was actually confirmed that that is Chris Evans' ass, so... Really? So he did both parts of that? He, yeah, he played, he played both asses. But I'm sure that Sam Hargraves, had he been called upon to double for the ass, would have done a magnificent job also. Maybe he was yes. like a reference ass when Chris Evans had to look at somebody's <laughs> ass to deliver that line convincingly. Exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. That's a yeah. very good point. That's a very, very good point. Uh, Helen, you were on set of this movie. Oh, really? Um, I haven't ever mentioned so, it. <laughs> Oops, oh, my iPod's just fallen over. Um, I'm just watching the end of the movie because I want to try and get that, that last freeze frame. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Okay. Oh, wait. Let's see. Ah, oh, that's unclear, isn't it? It's mm -hmm. unclear. But anyway, Helen, you were on set of this movie. Where did you yes. go? Where was the set of this film? Um, I, were, I flew to Thailand, to Bangkok, and... Mm -hmm. um, it's a very long flight. Anyway, and then I uh, was taken in an unmarked van to a remote location outside the city centre, about 40 minutes away. Hood over the head, or did you know yes, where you were going? Yes, absolutely. Well, no, actually, they let me look out the window. It was very nice. Um, but it was a sort of private little housing estate, so they were able to kind of basically shut this place off. There were still people living there, but they essentially were able to kind of take over this little private estate and dress it however they wanted and explode things and fire sh guns and um, do all manner of action-y stuff which was a lot of fun to watch it was literally, it literally I know I've said this before on the pod but we were literally being told to stand out of the way of shells possibly flying towards us from the guns uh, as Chris Hemsworth uh, came down the stairs firing wildly Gosh. in all directions 
Anyway, well, my point was you were on set, you met Sam Hargrave, mm-hmm. um, but then you got the chance to do so again virtually Indeed. whenever you and I spoke to him Indeed. on Squadcast uh, about a week or so ago, just before the film came out on Netflix, in fact. Uh, so here he is, uh, and we get into it rightfully off with the major spoilers, and in, in fact, the big question posed by the movie's last shot. And he gives as close to a definitive answer as I think we're going to get for the time being anyway. Here you go, me and Helen talking to Sam Hargrave. Enjoy. Delighted to be joined on this Extraction Spoiler Special by the film's director, Sam Hargrave. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm great. Thanks for having me. Um, it's really a pleasure to be here. Uh, where, where is here at the moment for you? All I can see is a map of the world, which means you bouncing around <laughs> like one of the spy movies. Is your location changing every five seconds? Uh, yeah, basically. No, I'm, I'm uh, you know, like most folks nowadays, I'm, I'm on lockdown. I'm, I'm here in, uh, at my, uh, my house in uh, Malibu, California. Okay, very, very nice. Well, what I like to do with the spoiler special, Sam, is I like to start off with the big question, the question that's on everybody's lips, uh, which is, you have a character called Tyler Rake. Yes. So did that mean it was inevitable that he had to, at some point in the movie, kill someone with a rake? <laughs> uh, yes, you know, I have to give credit to the fans for that one, because I, I remember... I'm trying to remember where it was. I can't remember the exact website, but there was talk of this movie when it was announced that I was directing it and that the character was called Tyler Rake. And, you know, it was something to the effect of, you know, with if Sam, you know, during this, the course of this movie, um, if, if Tyler Rake kills somebody with a rake, I will lose my shit. And so I was like, you know what? (laughs) That's actually a fantastic idea challenge accepted so you know we we did it was it was a basically a fan asking for such a thing that we we've tried to find the right place for it and i i think we did yeah chris and i were literally messaging each other when we saw that going he killed a guy with a rake oh my god yeah absolutely i, I was just i was just very very relieved he didn't have a sidekick called keith dildo uh, to be honest sam but uh maybe that's just me <laughs> Oh, that's fabulous. Uh, next time. Uh, it's, yeah, yeah next, next time. time. Next time. In, in, in Extraction 2. Um, <laughs> and and we're going to jump ahead a little bit because sure. the mere mention of Extraction 2 leads me to the end of the film and the mm. very last shot. And one of the great things that we've been able to do because, you know, we Helen and I were you know, very fortunate to be given access to your film. And because it's on Netflix, we've been able to pause. And so the last shot, what's going on there, Sam? What's going on? Who is that? Who's that by the swimming pool? What's happening? Yeah. Uh, don't you wish you knew? No, I, I'm, because we're on the spoiler special, <laughs> I, 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 can, I can tell you. Um, I'll, first, I'll lead into it with a little bit of backstory um, as to kind of wh- why, how that came about and why and the original intent. So originally in the story, my, you know, one of the changes that I made in the early drafts was that I wanted, I felt like, Tyler Rake's story was completed with his sacrifice for the character of Ovi. So in my, mm-hmm. you know, original draft, you know, working with Joe, we made the changes. So we went in with the intention of Tyler Rake not making it out alive. Uh, mm-hmm. But as you know, you get into the <laughs> studio system, people, uh, you know, uh, enjoy the movie. They enjoy the process. They they see the potential of you know expanding a universe or continuing a storyline or what have you you know uh, opinions arise and so and and not necessarily in a bad way like we we were very 
I learned from the Russo brothers that you should always approach this as the best idea wins, no matter you know who it comes from. But yeah. there was still some pushback. Like there was a you know a way that I kind of saw the movie. I wanted it to how I wanted it to go and kind of how we shot it. You know, with the all the damage that that happens to him on the the bridge in the third act. And so when we got to the ending, we we shot a version of it, and then we when we went back, and not just for that, but we went back for other additional photography for certain story points to flesh things out a little more but when we went back we shot a number of different versions of the ending and then of that same frame we shot like three different versions and we ended on through the whole testing process and uh you know we found that audiences were pretty much split down the middle a bit half thinking or wishing that tyler rake did not um, survive because they they kind of pointed to oh it's a cliche Hollywood ending there's no way he could have taken all that damage and made it through to other ha- <laughs> the other half that were you know coming up with really cool ideas like well he trained to hold his breath for a long time obviously he could have survived um, <laughs> and different reasons or they say well it's a more emotionally satisfying now that he has something to live for he is alive so we had him literally split down the middle so. What you see in the end is giving both sides what they want, which is an ambiguity (laughs) of who that is. So that if you watch the movie and you are one of the people who, you know, the 50 percent who says, I want Tyler Rake to live, then you can, you know, come up with reasons why that is Tyler Rake standing at the edge of the pool. If you are the other 50 percent who think he shouldn't be shouldn't have survived or couldn't have survived. You will look at that and go, no, that is a, a projection. Like that's like a quote, guardian angel of Rake watching the kid. That's his, you know, vision of Rake or his honor, uh, um, you know, honoring his mentor, and you know, you'll be satisfied. So truthfully, we did after a long testing process and discussion, we tried to, you know, make as many people as happy as possible. So that that is what that ending shot represents. Interesting. Um, yeah. Let's pin you down here, Sam, <laughs> as a director of this movie. What's your take? Oh, boy. Um, my take is Ty- Tyler-, <laughs> Tyler Rake's, um, you know, the movie I direct, Tyler Rake uh, did not make it. But, but I will say, in because there, you know, there's a lot of discussion, even while we were shooting, of, you know, other Tyler Rake stories, Tyler Rake is mm-hmm. alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excellent. I have to say, I mean, because it's really interesting because you start the film in media res. You start the film with, with Tyler on that bridge and with him being hit already and he's pretty beaten up. Uh, and I have to say, I was bracing myself the entire way through for his eventual demise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like this character and I, I quite like to see him kicking all sorts of ass in in, a, in another film down the line. Yeah. Uh, so I was very happy with that last shot, I have to say. Good. Uh, what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> so there we go. We're we're fifty fifty. It's, it <laughs> it's all good. It's all Love good. Um, but one character that's not coming back with Sam is your own character. I mean, he's pretty definitively dead. Yeah, you know that. That's part of the. Um, <laughs> I guess part of the nature of the cameo, right? You, I mean, you you can you can come back, or I had to do what was right for the role and right for the character as much as I mm. wanted to come back. This guy. You know, to set up our um, Saju character as a you know a guy who means business and to give some emotional depth to the loss of his team, I had to give a sacrifice. And so I, I will, if there's a sequel, you know, which we have talked about, I will not be 
that character in that sequel. <laughs> I mean, yeah. He could be a twin and you could just like shave off the production beard. Thank you, and Helen. Bob's your Thank uncle. You. That, You've got an exactly, entirely new character. <laughs> exactly. That that you'd speak in my language. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got to ask, I was on set of this back in whatever it was, January twenty nineteen and Were you, you you never talk about it. Oh shush. And, <laughs> and it was at that point called DACA. And I know yes. after that it was out of the fire, and now it's extraction. So, how many titles have you discussed for this movie? Oh, you don't that you don't. We don't have the time on this podcast. I'm not even joking. It's it's a funny it's funny to say, but literally the sheer number of titles that came across our desk mm. could, if you read them out loud one at a time, you could go on for hours. Um, it's it's really crazy because the, the original script I read was called Ciudad. And that was the, mm. um, you know, the script that Joe wrote, I think, seven or eight years ago now. And then they turned it into a graphic novel. And that was the original story that I read. He then, uh, because of the saturation of the marketplace with South American stories like Narcos and um, the movie that uh, – oh, what's I always – Sicario. It always escapes my memory. Yeah, Yeah, Sicario and then Soledado. Like it was a lot of stories about you know South American ties to corruption and uh, you know gangs and and kidnappings and stuff. So we tried to very smartly, I think, Joe steered away from that and went in a direction, Mm. kind of a part of the globe that Western audiences have not had a chance to see very much in cinema, at least not in Western yeah. cinema. And so, you know, the title changed to DACA. The the whole intention of the stories remained the same. It was, you know, the name, some of the names changed to make them more appropriate, you know, regionally appropriate. But it was the same story, just set in a yeah. different place. And then the problem, I mean, I like the title DACA, but the kind of couple issues we, we bumped up against were, you know, when you say that, to somebody DACA it has kind of they go wait is is that the you know the uh, the Trump immigration thing is that and you go no different movie and you see it written you know people are like uh it Dahaka what is that what does that mean Mm because there's an a a silent H in there and a lot of people unfortunately in the western world are unaware of that region of the globe and so they just it just people were missing I think that and it didn't tell a lot about what the movie was about and so we got into the more marketing of things a lot of different titles came across our desk and we ultimately we landed with uh, extraction yeah absolutely and I think also setting the film in DACA gives it a, a very, very different feel to other action movies that maybe, you know, you know, if you were to look at, say, the John Wick films, which you see equally have a one-man army at their centre, this feels very, very different. And uh, and setting the, the, the Wonner, which is really at the centrepiece of this movie, um, feels kind of unlike any any Western action movie that, that, I, that I've seen recently. Uh, can you talk about, about that and the, the mm-hmm. challenges of, of staging that Wonner and making it all blend together? What we tried to do is, you know, you're always trying to find a way to present your story, present the action in a way that hopefully is unique to you and your vision and hasn't been seen before, or at least, you know, hasn't been seen in that way. Because we're not the first movie to do mm. an extended take, you know, a one um, there's been a bunch of them, and then, truthfully, there was a bit of a, you know, a, a head slapping and like, ah, during the middle of production, we heard that Sam Mendes was doing an entire movie like this, and we were like, son <laughs> up, up. Um, 
So, but then <laughs> once you see it, it's just that the, the feeling is very different because you, you, that idea of a Warner given to, you know, three different directors will be three different things. You know, you, you get those long takes mm. on, um, you get like Birdman had those long takes, you know, mm -hmm. long Warners in 1917. There was a version of that in Atomic Blonde. So definitely, um, influences from from those things but the general idea um, the impetus was to have the audience experience this moment in the movie where there's um you know just the crazy action scene but you're also feeling the connection start to grow and you through action you bring these two characters together the character of tyler rake and ovi and you just start to see their relationship mm -hmm. grow and it was the intention was for audiences to experience all of that in real time and to kind of the the camera mm. to be a character so that you as the audience could experience what it's like the thrills the you know the fear the adrenaline of going through this kind of action step by step by step and you're you know you're you're coming up against these obstacles as Tyler Rake and Ovi do you're not you're not cutting away to see what's coming you're right there with them seeing what they see when they see it. So it's just a different experience. And then, you know, when I read that scene on the page, it was, it wasn't a wonder. It was, you know, a crazy action sequence. Joe's a great you know, action writer it was very visceral, uh, visceral and very visual and, and exciting, but it read mm -hmm. kind of like a James Bond movie or a Jason Bourne movie. And <laughs> based on our, you know, budget and shooting schedule, I was kind of like, Oh man, I, you know, this is going to be tough because I, I don't want to you know, give it a go and be, you know, have somebody pat you on the back and say, oh, nice try. <laughs> How do we take this? And it's no nothing that we did, I don't think, was necessarily, you know, um, unique or groundbreaking as far as what we were doing. I think it's more how we were shooting it and the perspective from which we saw the action. So that was just, you know, a, mm -hmm. a way for us to hopefully differentiate it and people will get talk about it and be entertained by it was not, you know, and we tried to do things that were fun and throw details in there for what we call the 2%, you know, action people who, who yeah. know action or know all this stuff and, and love those little details. But the overarching idea and theme was to photograph it in such a way as to differentiate it from other movies like your John Wicks or your, you know. Mission Impossibles or Avengers or whatever. So is that in terms of changing your focus from, you know, uh, from Rake and OV to the police to um, Sarju and back again? Is that is, is, it, is it sort of that? Because that is quite unusual. I feel like we haven't yeah. seen that as much with Warners. Yeah, yeah, that was part of it. That was a large part of it. Because at first, you know, the idea wasn't well received um, by other, you know, um, people in the filmmaking process because... Uh, and rightly so, they were concerned that in this sequence, obviously the story is most important. It should never just to be about the gag, about uh, you know some visual sight mm -hmm. gag. So you know they're like, well, are we going to be able to follow these storylines that are very important to this movie? And you know, I was like, yeah, I believe we can. Now it's going to be risky because most of the time people you want to follow your main character during something like this, but. What if, like, hear me out now, what if during this we leave our main character? And, you know, spoiler alert for, but that's what it's called. But, you know, when our, we, we, hit, <laughs> we hit our lead character with a car and leave him unmoving mm -hmm. on the street for, you know, like two or three minutes. 
we just you know and the shock of that hopefully is like whoa like it's just that's what's unique it's like how, how could they do that to him like this is uh, what happened and then you have to make sure that you kind of weave back in and kind of a, a full circle way of a little bit of humor a little bit of you know surprise as to how he gets back into the sequence mm-hmm. and you know that was i think part of the big difference from other oneers um, that i had been a part of or that i'd seen was trying to tell the perspective from three different points of view kind of go through this action sequence while not cutting the camera yeah that was proper final destination uh car car crash there <laughs> <laughs> that sequence is interesting for a number of reasons as as well sam i mean there's the there's the sheer damage that you you meet out to both rake uh and saju as well and that they're both being hit by vehicles they're both going through the the the, the mill in a, in a lot of ways um how important was it for you guys to track that stuff from a from a realism point of view uh in terms of you know so these guys aren't the term Terminator, for example, and so that they actually do have. It's interesting that Rake has a, his arm in a sling for for quite a bit of the movie, for example, uh, and making sure that the injuries were realistic. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a, a balance that we you have to you know, a line that you walk with movies, and I kind of, I guess, adhere to the Jackie Chan side, uh, side of things, which is reality plus ten percent. So definitely pushing the envelope a little bit. You know, there we we do want to adhere to reality that's the idea that it's grounded uh, in reality based action and that there are real consequences to these actions so you know for example when these two characters fall off of uh, over a balcony and hit a truck and, and land on the ground from like a 15 foot fall they don't just spring right back up it takes them a second mm. to gather themselves and you know when when uh, rake gets hit by a car he doesn't just pop back up like we leave him lying in the street and we give him that off camera two to three minutes to, to recover and to kind of gain consciousness again. And then if someone gets hit you know, in the leg, they're limping. Or if they, they get punched, like, you know, Saju shows up with a, with a broken nose. So we're trying to mm, yeah. adhere to the reality of the situation as best we can without completely halting the story, you know, like if uh, and giving a, a nod to the fact that these men are exceptional like that they are the best at what they do and they've mm. you know trained their bodies and been through situations like this so their pain tolerance their ability to push through you know use their mind to push their bodies beyond what the normal human could do we wanted to feature that as well so you know it's again reality mm-hmm. plus 10 percent, but trying our best to uh, honor it, you know decisions <laughs> that you make early on you got to adhere to that like you're, you're making the rules you better follow them I like to live my life's reality plus 20%. Uh, I don't know about you. But <laughs> love it, love it. <laughs> I'm, I'm reality kind of minus 20% personally. <laughs> yeah, I'm minus 73%. That's my, that's my life. Uh, but is a fascinating character. And now he starts off as this shadowy figure in, in Ovi's life. Then he turns into almost a, a full-on antagonist for Rake. Then he finishes it as, as an ally. And then he tragically dies and it's interesting because you you have this out for him he has this family that he is doing this for that he wants to to help escape um and then he doesn't obviously get that at the end can you talk about that arc and and the the decision to 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 kill that character i guess yeah i mean for me reading the original script saju was i think my favorite character um, he had the most every character in this movie. I, you know, it's kind of hard to define the good guys versus the bad guys because good and bad is a matter of perspective. All of these characters are operating yeah. in a very morally gray area, and you know we tried to you know honor that. And I think, but for him, 
his intentions, at least his call to action is pretty pure. Like his, he, his family has been threatened and, you know, he is doing these things. He'll do whatever it takes to save his family. And I think that is something that many people can identify with. So his motivation is very primal and very relatable. You know, now what he does under that, you know, those conditions are some pretty horrendous things. And, you know, we're not quite sure whether we're, we want him to, you know, to fail or succeed because we're, you know, he's got his own issues, but he's also trying to um, take down our hero, which is Tyler Rake. So, you know, he's a very interesting character in the morally gray area. And, you know, but, but he was fun to explore and fun to kind of, push the limits and the reason in the end i think that we and he had such an interesting arc is that he realizes you know they both realize he and tyler that the only way to achieve what they both want which is uh ovi being safe um because you know they for for rake he cares about the kid he's you know finally found something to live for and for um for saji because this that means his family will be safe so they, they have to work together in order to get what they want. And I thought that was a very interesting uh, turn and a fun fun thing to play with. And then, you know, I think it's his, you know, spoiler alert, his death is one of those <laughs> things where, you know, we tried with the movie to say, like, it's kind of that, you know, you live by the sword, die by the sword. There's there's really no yeah, necessarily heroes in this in this journey. And he's done some pretty terrible things in order to protect his family. So, you know, it's one of those things where if you, you, you make this choice to, to do these things, eventually that lifestyle kind of catches up to you. Same, you know, the same thing that happens with mm. the Amira Seif character in the end is like you, it's, it's hard to sustain this, this, you know, violent lifestyle without it catching up to you at some point. But you also have that kind of next generation element as well, because on one hand, Ovi seems to have, you know, no, he's no interest in any of this. He's not involved. Um, although I was interested that you, full-on killed his best mates like that was a bit of a shock um but you also have these sort of criminal kids who are kind of coming up and being indoctrinated and being wooed almost by these crime bosses Mm -hmm. yeah we that was part of the you know the um the world we were trying to paint in in both both ways is Mm. you know your hero is only as as good as your villain is bad and so to establish the the violent means through which you know amir asif and that world what they would use to get what they wanted which you know just murdering kids you're like wow that's that is bad those are bad people like that's that's pretty that's pretty bad no matter how you look at it you can it's hard to justify (laughs) that kind of action so you know you got that establishing the world that we're you know up against and then but what we also wanted to say is like the it is kind of a, a a vicious cycle of you know, rebirth, if you will, of the the violence begats violence, and you you have this this mm-hmm. the Farhad character who, and that was actually to touch on him is the father son thematics throughout the movie was something that I was very interested in because you have almost three parallel uh, stories of that. You have Tyler with with Ovi, you've got Saju with his mm-hmm. son, and then the you know the lead bad guy Amir Asif, um with this kid Farhad and he's like, there's like a very father son mm. kind of, you know, um, nurturing, although be it twisted at times and nurturing, um, uh, part of the, each one of these men. And they kind of, it's about like, yeah. you know, 
something to live for, like a legacy to live on. So, you know, you know, we're all going to pass at some point, but if you can pass that on, pass on your kind of way of life or your, your thoughts and beliefs to some other, you know, the next generation that then, you know, you can live on. And so I think the, that relationship was also a very interesting one, the one between Amir and, and Farhad. And ultimately, you know, that comes back in the end with the, what happens on the on the bridge with Farhad and, and Tyler. Yeah, I, th- I thought that was that was really interesting as well. And, and you have this with, with Tyler who sees this kid and he just glibly dismisses him, slaps him down, uh, beats yeah. up a kid, which is which is interesting. <laughs> but that comes back obviously to to um to bite him on the on the ass, so to speak. And the Farhad's arc I thought was really, really interesting. Can you can you can you speak to that as well? That that that, that idea that he would be the one ultimately to come back and and uh, and, and and kill in, in quote unquote uh, Tyler. Yeah, um, we. I always found that very interesting and very poignant. You know, like that that you had uh, there's this parallel storyline of a kid who, you know, from a really rough uh, neighborhood and you know socioeconomic status, finding a way, uh, finds a meaning of or, or a way to belong to something. And you know, for him, it yeah, it's a gang. It's a it's it's gang related activities and violence. But he finds a place like this, like yeah. I said, this father figure who accepts him. And at first, you know, it's it's very much, a, you know, he uses his his wits and his smarts to kind of gain fa- gain the favor of this character, and then through violence, like his motivation is acceptance. Like he feels like if he can, you know, accomplish this goal, the thing that other people are having trouble doing, if he can take down this this Tyler Rake character, he will then be accepted as you know part of the 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 tribe if you will and and gain favor with this person who he looks up to in in his world in his own little world so i think the his journey is a very interesting one and one that we you know thought a lot about and um came out i think came out pretty good it's and also what we tried to do his character was one of them and but then also in the opening action sequence we tried to you know, touch on so many action movies, um, and I guess we at times, but so many action movies, you pick your, your good guy and your bad guy, and then, you know, we're on board with the good guy and everybody else, anyone who opposes him is a kind of a villain and we don't really care. It's like, yep, you're going down and we're gonna, you know, revel in that and we're gonna enjoy it. So what we tried to do in this the opening ac- action scene where, you know, where he also dispatches someone with a rake in the eyeballs is, you know, and amongst that violence where hopefully people enjoy it, you have a, another point of view in that fight, which is from this other young kid's mm-hmm. um, perspective where we try to show that there are always consequences to your actions. And, you know, who is good and who is bad is really a matter of perspective because, you know, for us, we're cheering for Tyler because we want him to save the kid. He's our hero. We want him to win. But from this kid's point of view, Tyler is the villain. He, you know, he killed yeah, he's his, terrifying. his, yeah, his friend, he's a, yeah, he's, he's, he's a, you know, the, the devil incarnate. Like he's killed his friends, his brother, like, and if, you know, and it's just like a, you know, ch- a turn of fate that he, he didn't kill Tyler. And it's, it's a real, I thought that was a very, and that was something I wanted to add to that scene just because to, just to kind of, give a nod to the fact that, you know, so many times in movies and it, and we walked it always do walk a very fine line with glorifying violence. And so I wanted to just give mm-hmm. a little bit of a nod to, there are consequences to your actions. And just because you think you're doing the right thing, you know, that is a matter of perspective and, you know, you just gotta, 
be sure to, to look at both sides and of the situation before you judge. And that was kind of what that character represented mm. in that scene. Does Tyler recognize him when he shoots him on the bridge? No, Tyler didn't see that one coming. I think that that moment, I think, was more yeah. about Farhad's growth and the shock and awe for the audience. For Tyler, you know, to, and for, for us, it was like he, he accomplished what he, the kid was safe. Like as soon as that kid gets into the hands of his team, you know, it's mission accomplished. Mm. And then we're like, OK, great. Now it's mm. a little extra and he's going to he's going to make it. So then that, you know, his getting shot by Farhad is more of just like, oh, my God. And then we recognize who that is, and we're like, "Oh my gosh, that was the kid he dismissed in the alleyway. Like he, he made him, you know, made him feel like mm. a fool. He kind of insulted it without knowing, mm. or really even considering that that could come back to literally kill him. So it was more of the, you know, thing for the audience and less for Tyler to experience because to us, like the, the emotional moment in the end there was less his recognition of that moment and more his, you know, connection with Ovi and you know basically realizing in this moment of um you know dying that he um that he finally had something to live for and that he ca- he came to terms with his past and was finally at peace and able to kind of you know mm. pass on to the next stage of, of things as uh, you know in peace I was gonna ask a little bit just about Ovi because I know that Rudy was you know super super enthused for the film I believe yeah. he learned to play piano is that right he learned to play piano for that one scene he did, yeah. And I mean, you know, it's one of those things where it's tough because at that point in the movie, it's hard to know what that song, what that thematic uh, music's going to be. And so we, we learned, we knew mm-hmm. tonally it was around the same. So he learned, yeah, he learned a song. It wasn't exactly that song, but a, a song that was, he was playing live. He learned piano. He, you know, he did a lot, he, he did a lot of uh, breath work so that at the end he could you know, hold his breath underwater. And he did, he put a lot into this role. And not to mention the kid grew six inches during the course of production. <laughs> from the time we started the movie in like three or four months from the time we shot his like he had grown six inches. Oh it was God. unbelievable. And then, you know, by the time we had to go back for ADR or anything like that, his voice had dropped three octaves. It was like talking to Chris Hemsworth's father or something. It was in, it was insane. <laughs> Yeah. I, I hear Hemsworth grew six feet during the uh, the production as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's just massive by the end of it. Um, yeah. And the last thing I'm going to ask you, Sam, because we do have to let you go, is um, the, 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 the key scene um, for me is the conversation between Ovi and, and Rake in the mm-hmm. bedroom of that safe house, uh, yeah. where, where Rake kind of lets us in, I think for the first time, lets us into his pain. Mm-hmm. And was that important to you as well, just in terms of establishing that connection um, and explaining why Rake doesn't take the easy way out and just go for the money and just, and just let Ovi go? Oh, for, uh, 100%. Without that scene, without that opening up, the movie, you know, it's just another action movie. You don't, you know, you don't care. You don't uh, understand the, the motivations for or the, the reasons for his pain. So that was that was the scene of the movie for me, and one that, you know, I tried to just make sure that we. And it's a difficult. Those scenes are difficult, you know, because uh, you get an action scene moving, and there's other things to kind of, you know, focus on and look at. You're like, oh wow, this is pretty, and this is this is exciting. It, you, Story's being told, but this is you know, this is fun and distracting. In this moment, a very quiet, intimate moment, but one that is the most important to the movie. That's a you know that's a daunting task for a director. Just how are you, how are you going to capture that in the most kind of truthful way? 
and you know to try to make the actors comfortable so that they can be vulnerable like that's that's some of the most vulnerable scenes i've ever seen chris hemsworth you know be a part of and he he really mm-hmm. committed to that i mean he was it was unbelievable to watch that the process i was you know take after take it was i was behind the monitor i was crying because he was so open and vulnerable and relating to this character so much he he just he blew me away with his abilities and commitment to this role he said several times in his interview that you were a very gentle soul. So oh, well, I feel like you're just like confirming that there. Well, I, I appreciate <laughs> the, those kind words. And I, I was, you know, I can be empathetic to those that, you know, when it's great. I actually kind of not say modeling is just kind of who I am. But I, I remember seeing Gavin O'Connor direct scenes in um, in Warrior where he was he was so into mm-hmm. what was happening in front of the cameras. To, it was actually as entertaining to watch him watch what was happening because he he would be in tears he hanging on every word and i was like wow that that is really something you know that i want that kind of and i think i have it to to a certain extent like as far as investment in the character investment in that moment because above all else i'm a i'm an audience member so i'm trying to experience this with the character and hopefully the people that watch the movie can have that same experience, you know, and different people at different times over and over can have this experience. And so I think it's important just as a director as well to be vulnerable and to be able to, yeah. to feel these things. Because if you're not, you know, if you're not connecting to the character, then most likely other audience members aren't either. So I think it's very important and something, that, you know, hopefully I can continue to develop and, you know, and, and hone in on as my directing career hopefully continues. Well, the, the last thing, and if this isn't the last thing, you can kill me with a rake. That's a promise. Um, is uh, as 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 a director is one thing, but as an audience member as well. The minute David Harbour shows up, you're almost expecting there to be a big showdown between the two, and you don't disappoint. Uh, yeah. Can you talk very, very quickly about that? And also about his death scene, which I thought was really, really interesting. The way he just kind of slumps into his chair and just kind of dies. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, when we got David Harbour on board, I mean, Netflix was ecstatic because, you know, we've got a built in fan base. And I'm a huge fan of his, a huge fan of, uh, you know, this this series uh, that he's made so popular, you know, Stranger Things. But he just brings a, a very unique and, um, you know, visceral energy to the character. And it was really crazy to work with him just because every take was different. Every take was this new energetic version of the you know of what was being asked of him and well you know we it was hard we wanted to try to build a relationship between the two to where it was a little uneasy but you didn't you know hopefully weren't like he's the bad guy you're like oh well you know maybe he's uh, he's their old friends and he's going to be tempted but maybe he won't do it <laughs> but you know harvard i think did such a great job such a layered character that when when the twist came you're like, oh shit, yeah. things are gonna go down. And you know, physically, he's you know, he's just standing eye to eye with Chris Hemsworth, and you're like, I, I believe, because he's the only guy in the movie who, who you know, takes Hemsworth down. And so that mm. kind of alludes yeah. to their past and their training together, and the fact that they've you know, they've had a long history and have worked together, fought together. But then we also wanted the his action, but also his death scene to be somewhat awkward. Like, kind of pitifully awkward in a way because he, he's someone who, you know, he made this decision to betray his best friend for what, you know, like so for some mm. more money. 
and and ultimately yeah he you know he dies just sitting there in his house and just very unceremoniously like he he says i don't want to play you know hero on a, a suicide mission but in fact being the villain he ends up in a very kind of just i don't say pathetic but like in a very kind of a sad um you know sad death mm-hmm. they just there and it, but it's a it's a very important moment for for uh, Ovi's character as well and it, so I think that that scene was another mm-hmm. one that whole part yes. of the movie there that it was a very pivotal moment for so many characters and the way the actors performed those you know those scenes were you know it really made those scenes effective Sam we're gonna let you go it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and uh, best luck with everything for the future if you do make Extraction 2 and you do fancy a character called Keith Dildo come to me and Helen uh, and we have I have I, I, no I'm not, well, to, not spe- nothing to do with specifically me specifically come to me I have pages pre-written uh, it's it's a lot of fun he kills a bunch of bad guys I won't say what with but you might be able to have a guess uh, it's I been an absolute it. pleasure man thank you so much hey thanks Chris thanks Helen I appreciate you having me on it's been a lot of fun thanks awesome. a lot. cheers fella Okay, so that was Sam Hargrave. Let's start with the end, shall we? Because we yeah. did with him, and we might as well, because it's the thing people were, are going to be talking about. Uh, because having revisited this movie since I saw it last, and since I wrote the review, I can't help but feel I was a little harsh. I gave it three stars in Empire, and part of me thinks that's entirely fair. But another part of me, the part that loves action movies, thinks that I maybe, maybe was a bit negative uh, and the action scenes in this movie are really good mm. really solid and sometimes great and perhaps that deserved a fourth star in itself yes i think i think you got it right i think it's a four star three star movie in the sense that it's a <laughs> lot of fun and you'll really enjoy it and i also have gone back and rewatched it and and also watched the winner again on its own mm. and um and thoroughly enjoyed it each time but at the same time I, f- I feel like it's one of those movies that would almost be hurt by a four star rating because people would go in expecting more than it is and yeah. I think what it aims to be is a good action movie in a very tr- kind of almost traditional action movie way in terms of its very kind of quite linear plot. You know, it sort of rolls along relentlessly, doesn't give you a lot of kind of side missions or whatever else. And and I like that. But also, mm. I don't think it kind of, you know, has the kind of elevation that I think people might expect of a four star one. I think it feels like the epitome of our our motto, the three stars is recommendation. Like it, it is a recommendation because, uh, like you said, the action scenes in it are great. Uh, we get a, a sort of pretty decent new action hero in Tyler Rake. I think Chris Hemsworth is great. Like it's really fun to see him playing this kind of action hero role after seeing him do Thor, um, which is a very different sort of hero, mm. getting him like literally walking around punching dudes in the face kicking everyone around all of that stuff he's great at that but the, there's something about the film itself that just doesn't quite elevate itself to a four star for me as great as the things that are good about it are okay fair enough i i, I feel that maybe i was a little harsh in terms of the action scenes okay so here, here, here we'll make a compromise okay okay so the the action scenes are four stars yeah mm-hmm. the movie itself is probably three mm-hmm. but I just remember the time that I revisited John Wick, which I've talked about many times on the podcast, and the scales fell from my eyes. And, you know, I have a soft spot for movies like this. I, I rewatched The Equalizer 2 last night um, for a Denzel Washington ranking where yet to uh, revisit. My wife hadn't seen it. She really wanted to see it. And uh, so I, we revisited The Equalizer 2, and I eat this shit up. I love shit like this. I love badasses being badass. Yeah, it absolutely fits in that category. But the reason that I 
brought it up and brought up my feelings about this was because when I was rewatching it, especially, and I said this to Sam Hargrave as well, is I would be okay with another Tyler Rake movie. I would be okay with there being a sequel to this. And so I do want him to be improbably alive at the end of the movie. <laughs> and I do want that to be him standing by Ovi's pool at the very end. Uh, but what about you guys? What do you, what do you think? Where do you stand on that? Um, I'm going to have my cake and eat it by saying I think it's a massive cop-out. Like, it couldn't be a bigger cop-out. Like, he's definitely dead by any rational standard. However, I'm quite happy if he's alive and we get another one, because that sounds like a giggle. When when they sort of supposedly killed him off, I was like, really? I felt sort of disappointed that they killed him off. It, it was like a, it felt like a really weird note to end on for, like, a big, generally quite splashy and in-your-face action film to then just like go for the downbeat ending um so as soon as they gave that little bit of a cop out at the end i was like yeah i will i am happy to believe that he survived especially surely they're gonna make more of these right surely this can't be the if you're gonna make a hero called tyler rake and cast chris hemsworth (laughs) and have him be really good why wouldn't you do that for a second time come on I think talking to Sam Hargrave, we got the feeling that 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 seems to be the the feeling from other people inside the uh, the extraction camp as well. That they maybe realised, oh, actually, there's there's a franchise here, and there's a franchise character here mm-hmm. in Tyler Rake, uh, and also in other instalments, we might actually get to learn more about him other than. He looks like a Brad and he had a son and he's very sad. And that's, you know. <laughs> Maybe the other facts will rhyme too. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, look, the, the whole tragic past worked pretty well for Riggs. So I don't see why it shouldn't work for Rake as well. Riggs and Rake. Riggs and Rake. No, we oh don't, we're not bringing God. back, but we're not bringing back Riggs, are we? I think what you were saying about John Wick as well, I think this potentially has the potential of something like John Wick where I think the first time I saw John Wick I really enjoyed it but I didn't necessarily pick up on of on this, the beginnings of that sort of weird mythology stuff that actually makes those movies really fun and it's more in John Wick 2 that that steps up and I think in this one there's lots of great stuff I didn't necessarily love the tone of it like the seriousness of it and I think if it could if they can take what's good about this one inject a little bit more knowing fun and silly not necessarily silliness it can still be hard-edged but a bit more knowingness to it and maybe do something interesting with the world they've got a hero that could adapt to that um so i would kind of like them to do more because i think there's enough potential for them to do something john wick ish next time around Ooh, yeah i think so i absolutely think so well i mean yeah that would work really well just because hemsworth is a hilarious comic actor like he's he's a great comic actor um trapped in a hunky hunky body which must be tough for him but i do wonder like one of the things that i think hargrave was really proud of when he talked on set and and indeed to us chris was the fact that you know this has been a bit more of a dramatic role for him that he has had to kind of push himself into dramatic moments that we maybe haven't seen from him very much and he did those really well as well so you want to keep i guess a little bit of that and sort of keep that connective tissue with the character and then maybe just you know dial up the humour like a little bit like you say I think it's not even necessarily that character but like the world around Mm. him because that's the thing with John Wick as well like the the loss of John Wick's wife and the dog is actually like they take that stuff really seriously it's just that the world around him is dialed up 
that extra bit out of out of the ordinary that mm. having somebody who plays it so straight in the middle actually really works in its favor so again i'd love to do them to do something like that here and i feel like the character is there and the way that the character reacts to these situations is great because you want somebody who's just capable and badass and when confronted by a gang of children will just slap them around i will say children <laughs> with weapons and murderous intent not just any oh, okay, old children okay. just- um, <laughs> <laughs> so you if they wanted to go wacky comedy and it's just like he's just walking into schools and okay, starting stick playground with me here. fights and Tyler Rake versus uh-huh. Bugsy Malone <laughs> right the kids uh, think... are armed with custard pies he's yeah. armed with some kind of heavy weaponry I mean it'd be a blast like a custard cannon or something <laughs> there'd it be songs be. that'd be a really really fucking short film uh, <laughs> it really would <laughs> Tyler Rake massacres a bunch of kids who are firing pastry at him. I mean, it's it's really not fair. Uh, but, frankly. you know, we don't know. I mean, he could be gluten intolerant. You know, there could be real danger there. <laughs> what so. a twist. And he stabs him to death with his EpiPen. So it's... <laughs> It's all, it's all good. <laughs> Whatever happens, they're not coming out of that alive or well or both. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, the, the tone of this film is interesting. Uh, so we have a bunch of questions that we're going to take throughout the course of the show. But the first one comes from uh, Dan Story, who's a friend of ours, a friend of the pod, at Dapper Dan on Twitter. And he asks, is this the closest we've come to those 80s, 90s, old school, huge movie star front and centre R-rated action movies that Sly and Arnie and Van Damme et al made by the bucket load once upon on a time and a few other people have made that that claim as well or made that point uh, on twitter also i don't know though i mm. i don't know i think it is a little bit more po-faced than say a commando or even oh, something yeah. like a even something like a predator it is so resolutely brutal uh, and in a way in a way the deaths of saju and the deaths of well what we think is the death of Rake, uh, it fits in perfectly with the worldview of this movie. I think it's more 90s into noughties action, kind of Denzel Washington kind of thrillers, you know. Like A Man on Fire. A Man on Fire is obviously, yeah, I think the closest one, but just, you know, serious kind of growing up action movies, not kind of the wisecracking of of the Arnie stuff, um, mm. and a, a, but still hard-edged, but still quite yeah. a lot of action. So that it feels a little bit more like one of those to me. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I have to say the that sort of period, the whole Van Damme, Steven Seagal period is not something I know that well. I feel like it's a bit of a blank <gasps> spot for me. But having, I mean, coming from where I come from, it Which can't help. The, uh, the early 2000s. <laughs> yeah, probably sometime <laughs> last week. Um, <laughs> it can't help but feel like post-Raid, post-John Wick, like a new version of those things rather than literally harking back to what those films were something inspired by that but with a bit of grit and a bit of the sort of technical one-upmanship mm. of this recent spate of action films that seem to be really going for it in terms of one-take fight scenes in terms of just general wonners in terms of like really brutal punch-ups that feel very visceral in that way it, it can't help but feel quite contemporary in that sort of run of films that we've had in the last sort of decade. Well, of course, I think there, you know, Hargrave's background as a stunt guy, as a stunt expert kind of comes into it, I think, because he knows, again, we, he knows what he's doing with action. He knows what's possible and what's not. I mean, the, the wonder in this, as he talked about in the interview, came as much from kind of figuring out how to do this on budget and on schedule as it did from wanting to dazzle everybody with whatever he could do action-wise. Mm. Um, and I think that's part of the the recent renaissance has been everybody from 
from Gareth Ed- Evans and the Raid and t- through the Chad Stahelski and David Leach uh, films, these guys know what they're doing with action. Uh, they are, you know, experts at it uh, on, on movie action and in terms of movement, and they know what works and what doesn't. And that's what's made the difference, I think, in terms of those scenes, uh, especially. I think what's great as well is that you really see in something like um, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, in a, in a PG-13, 12A movie, um, the fights in that had a real physicality and a real heft to them, but obviously mm. dialed down for that more family-friendly audience. And it was nice to see him clearly taking that style of action and just mm. give it that extra edge yeah. that you would get well, I mean, in the 15 or 18. Is this 18 yeah. extraction? I think it is, yeah. I think yeah. It is, which is weird because John Wick 3 is 15 and that has eyeball slicing <laughs> and access to the it head. never is. Yeah, it's 15, all the John no, Wick are 15. which you've is, made that up. No, no. It's you true. lie. I, I can you get it You sit on the throne of lies. I have it on the shelf behind worry, me. I can, I can verify your lies <laughs> in real time, Benjamin Travis, if that is your name. Holy cow. <laughs> oh, God, cow. he's gone. He's gone. Holy cow. Oh, he's wait, bringing us even... back the DVD, cover, DVD covers. Well, they've got, they've clearly got a bend cut. That's uh, so lovely. Oh, yeah, he's right. <laughs> <laughs> Damn my you. Blu-ray. How? <laughs> if that picks up on Mike. How is John Wick Chapter 3 of 15? It's he sticks a knife into a guy's eye. In close-up. Mm-hmm. What is happening? All right, let me just double check this because uh, I'm pretty sure when I started watching Extraction again this morning, it said 18. So we can, we can, you know, this is exciting stuff for the people at home. Dude, They're going to wow. hear us. Live it is Googling. 18. Look at that. Look at that. Maybe. But that's, but, but 18. don't Netflix Maybe you set get their a, own ratings? No, that's an 18. That's right. a BBFC. That's a BBFC. 18, you're right. You're right. Maybe you get a lower rating if half of your violence is perpetrated by horses and dogs as it is in mm-hmm. John Wick 3. That makes sense. Rather than by yeah. humans. But well, it is it is brutal in extraction. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a really hard hitting film yeah. right from the off. Um, you know, from that moment where he kills that those dudes with the rake, and uh, and as he pushes the guy's head down onto the rake, you can hear the squelch uh, of the guy's well, eyeball presumably popping, uh, and it's just pretty hard hitting. A lot of headshots, mm. a lot of headshots, and the, and the Warner is really Wick. brutal. He did. He kind of has a double tap with his machine gun, which is a little similar to John Wick's double tap with his um, nine millimeter Glock Beretta, whatever the hell it is, um, <laughs> but his handgun. And there's, I noticed this when I was watching the Wonder again today. There's, uh, do you remember a few years ago when uh, Pav Basra, who um, you know sadly is no longer with us uh, at Empire, and he was, we were talking about doing a, a reloads feature. I yeah. think we even, we even did it. I'm not sure did if we, we did on the website. I think we did. The great movie the great reloads, yeah. really cool movie reloads. And uh, there's one in the Wonder which belongs in there where he's fighting a whole bunch of dudes and he runs he, he's shooting everyone in point blank range and he runs out of bullets and he somehow manages to punch someone in the face um, take his gun reload it off the ammo pack that's in the front of his vest and then immediately shoot someone with it as well to, to his right it's really really cool piece yeah. of, uh, of action it reminded me of Pav as well because it's it's beautiful. I should be clear in the sense of someone being very like competent. Yeah, <laughs> I love it when really they kill great. people. It's gorgeous. Such a beautiful moment when that man's brain exploded. <laughs> but no, just in the sense of somebody doing something physical very well and very fluidly, and it's always a pleasant to w- thing to watch. So, yeah. In a part from the, watching know, this film, going, oh, he's very he's very skilled. He's <laughs> so he's, he's ever so skilled. Like he you've never so thought skilled. that watching an action movie. Come on, come on. 
But that's that's what's great about movies like this, where we get to watch, you know, whether it's you know the, of the modern day stuff, whether it's Robert McCall in the Equalizer movies, both of which oh I will argue are <laughs> underrated. But uh, you know, I, I realize I'm pretty much on an island of one when it comes to that. But there, then you have the John Wick films, and you have these guys, these hard edged, hard bitten action movie heroes who know what the fuck they're doing, mm. and uh, Rake. Even more so than John Wick is a man of few words. And there's a moment when he has first extracted the kid, Ovi, from the uh, from the evil guys with the rake and the guns and the whatnot. And and he just you know, he's gearing up, ready for the, the for his extraction. And it's just this really interesting it's not particularly great, but it's just really interesting watching him at work putting the bulletproof vest on himself and gearing up and then putting it in an OV and then taking the camera and, you know, and just mm. asking for proof of life. It's really interesting to watch people who know what they're doing. Do, do what, what they, know. they know. They're doing. Yeah. 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 And, and him as a mercenary as well, it works. That this is, this is a job for him. He's very professional about it. He just like gets on with it. I feel like it speaks at least to a bit of his character that that's the way he, yeah. he responds mm. in these situations. How did we feel about the emotional turn of the film? Because by the end of the movie, he's he's willing to risk everything. He has several opportunities in the movie to just walk away and leave Ovi to his fate. Uh, they don't really get that much time to bond, you know, in the terms of movie-movie tradition anyway. And yet he still wants to let on the line for, for Ovi. Um, did you did you buy that? Did you did you think that was that was plausible? I think so because he's well. First of all, he lost a son, so there's there's an element I think of transference there that you know, that was clearly at least a few years ago. He's got to be thinking his son would be a little bit closer to Obi's age now. You know, I think there's an element there of what would I want someone to do for my kid if they were in this situation. and I think also just he's an adorable kid. Like I met Rudy obviously on set, but Ovi, even not seeing much of him, he's an innocent kid. He doesn't have anything to do with his father's business. He's not involved in any way. He's not implicated. He's just a a little kid. He's a guy. And and mm-hmm. I think therefore you do want to make sure that he gets out of there alive. And and he knows that if he leaves him behind, it is a death sentence. Like there's no kind yeah. of room for wiggling there. Room for I- wiggling? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I see you have left room for wriggling. <laughs> I I think I bought it more in the sense of the sort of genre constraints of he is the action hero, so he's going to be the action hero who will put his life on the line for the kid rather than actually buying into those characters massively bonding. I think that's why I think if we were talking about the tone of it and maybe having a little bit more fun in there, having those characters who actually have a reasonable amount of chemistry Mm. actually get more time to interact and have more sort of personal conversations and have a bit of fun with that so that then when you get to the big showdown at the end you see a bit more of why he puts his life on the line other than his personal history with his own kid which Mm. I feel like it relied on that more than actually showing any real bond between Tyler and Ovi even though Chris Hemsworth and Rudy had like decent chemistry together Yeah. yeah He really sells it in that that scene. The, basically, the one scene they really do have to bond, which is when Ovi is asking him about, "Why are you so sad, sad brooding man? You're such a sad brooding man. Why is that?" And Hemsworth was like, "Oh, lost me, kid. Oh, I lost me, kid." Um, and that's, that's he sells it really well in that moment. Uh, in my review, I did talk about how at the beginning of the movie he is a bit, you know, he is one of those cliched tortured heroes with a past and everything's in, in caps. Um, you know, when we first see him, he's you know he basically jumps into a into a pool and sits at the pool in re- in reflection, you know, because that, that's that- what tortured guys do yeah that shot of him at the bottom of the uh, of the little pool lake thing i was like it, it 
in another film, I would feel that this was a knowing, slightly taking the piss kind of thing, but it felt yeah. very sincere in a way that I wasn't necessarily on board with that <laughs> moment. Um, I am I am always here for a tortured, brooding hero unless he's Batman. Um, so I actually am I'm super on board with that. If he could have worn a plaid shirt, I would have been more on board, but we can't have everything. I, it what, would have been what, very hot. Well, that's true. Well, he was very hot, Ben. I mean, that's... Have you seen the man? <laughs> Look at him for God's sake. Walk around him, boys. Uh, have you seen uh, Helen? How do you feel about the hair, the facial hair? I was very on board with it. <laughs> <laughs> yep, hundred uh, percent. Where does he stand now in the movie? Chris's. He was two, yeah. wasn't he? He was number two, or was he, he three behind Pine? He, he goes. He and Pine are kind of interchangeable, personally, for me. I think I feel like they're both. They both make a very strong case. Um, okay, so it's Pratt number one, and then. <laughs> A long no, way you're, down. You're hilarious. And then we have. We no, it's, have it's actually. Pine. Genuinely, it's, it's Evans number one and, and very close behind numbers two and three, interchanging generally. Uh-huh. And then and then a very long distance. <laughs> and, then, and then Chris Messina, of course. And then Chris Pratt. <laughs> Chris Messina. Come on. Birds of Come prey, on. baby. Birds of prey. Mm, yes, yes. He was indelible <laughs> in that film, wasn't he? Uh, anyway, let's talk about the winner. What do we think about the winner? Oh, good, wasn't it? Decent. Mm. No, it was, it was great. I, I really like the way that it evolves multiple times over the course of the sequence. So you get chasey bits, you get shooty bits, you get sort of <laughs> well, run along corridor bits. Terms, <laughs> we learned these at film journalist school, everybody. <laughs> yeah, that's why they pay us the big bucks. Um, yeah, uh, and especially that moment that they put in the trailer of the uh, of the camera being passed into the back of the car. Mm. That that is that's the good stuff. I love that. That is um, the good stuff. Yeah. yeah, really yeah. impressive. And and interesting, as you said, that then he was, Hargrave himself was saying that that was partly a sort of financial constraints thing. I guess if you keep it on those characters, you can very much control how much is seen and how much you need to see and what you can do with sound rather than having to show everything. But it's also not kept on the same characters throughout, which I think is quite unusual for a winner like this. You know, it's, it's, we've often seen it from Atomic Blonde, which of course was also Sam's fight, but, you know, it's been focused on a character um, a lot of the time in this kind of sequence. And this one does shift. So it goes from um, Tyler and Ovi to the police, to Saju, you know, and back and forth. And and I think that's yeah. really, really clever. I think that piece of sort of choreography was like, and, and storytelling was was really, really impressive. And, and the bit where it just follows Ovi and it looks like he's done for and then Hemsworth pops up behind him and it's them together again. The camera follows them off together. It's great. Exactly. Really and, and, and by following the police, it allows Hemsworth to emerge like a sort of avenging angel at one yeah. point. And you're just like, holy shit, this guy's scary. And I think that works <laughs> really well, too. Yeah, I mean, it shows you. I mean, he's already shown his credentials. He's established those with the scene where he kills all those dudes. Uh, why is there a rake there? I don't get it. They don't Look, seem they, they to have, have a garden. No, they have like a patio area, I think. <laughs> okay. There's a patio right. in that building somewhere, Chris. Sure. No okay. Anyway, so he kills all those guys and it's, it's very brutal and it's very efficient and he's, he clearly knows what he's doing. Uh, but then when he's handling all those, those police, who let's just assume for the sake of this 
are corrupt and they yeah. all they're all in on it and there there are no <laughs> innocent policemen nope. who are being killed in an Austin Powers style <laughs> you know, well I'm off for my first day at work dear <laughs> being brutally killed by an Australian mercenary before then <laughs> judo chop <laughs> judo <laughs> chop lie down son lie down do you know how many anonymous henchmen I've killed over the years um, <laughs> he's really really great in the oneer as well and again I think it was a little harsh on the oneer in my review and look at that again uh, just in terms of we've just come off 1917 and you know we've come up there are an awful lot of movies these days that do oneers like this and you can see some of the joints in this you can see where you know this is Netflix and this is Hemsworth and it is the Russo brothers but still the budget isn't infinite um that that all the money was spent on Thanos you know Damn <laughs> there's him. there's a little bit there's a you know and so sometimes you'll just see the join uh, for example it ends with them bailing out the car and that's a fairly well I'm, I may be completely wrong on this but to me that seems like a fairly obvious green screen type situation um you know and there's just moments there's little transitions or moments where you know maybe we're maybe we're looking at it a bit too much the same way we did with 1917 so the first mm-hmm. time you watch 1917 you're looking for all the all the possible cutting points all yeah. the possible transition points and maybe it's the same with this one as well and the second time round once you get past looking for oh did they move on that wipe oh someone did the object filled the screen at that point was that a cutting point um and you get into the actual intricacies of the action it's really interesting as you guys say i love the way that it it changes your perspective and it changes your object character i'm not entirely sure this movie's quite realistic but then you have both rake and saju being hit by cars and thrown into things and yes it shows that they're you know they broke they got broken arms broken noses and stuff but you know they'd be dead wouldn't they? <laughs> I mean, when well, rake I... drives a truck into saju and sends him flying back 10 feet into another truck that's a broken back maybe it's set in the fast and furious universe where cars are basically pillows for anybody to fall onto and they have a soft landing soothing um, pillows I, but there are also agree. planes in the fast and furious universe they're pillows but also planes it's very i agree that you can see sort of quite a few of the joins in that sequence but i think the thing with one is is that yes partly the excitement is the recognizing the technical bravura of it of going oh wow yeah you look at all these people coming in and the way that camera's moving around everything but also it is away from the the way that it made it's the effect that it has on you and it i was with that sequence the whole way especially i think it helps that that it does change perspective because i think sometimes those longer sequences if you just follow one character they you have to do a lot to keep it interesting and make it not just here's one dude beating up a bunch of dudes so having it switch perspectives and move around on literal like height layers and going up through the through the flat and then down onto the street and everyone's getting hit with cars it it kept that sequence really exciting the whole way through just with a bit of added intensity from the fact that you've just got this one perspective following it through the whole way um so yeah you, the, the the joins are there but um i i think it's still a really impressive piece of work and it mm. These things don't have to live or die by whether you can see those cutting points or not. Mm. No, absolutely not. And it's probably it's my bad for for probably you know deducting the points for that. Um, I, I still think it's really impressive, really well done. I, I love the the moment where Saju and Rake face off in the streets and they're just going at each other with knives. 
really brutal. And there's also that lovely moment where there's a guy on a moped just rides through them as as Rake is stabbing at <laughs> Saju, and he has to pull back because you know, otherwise he might stab an innocent. And I'm pretty sure there's a bit where he runs over someone. You know, and we're driving through the streets, and he's like, "Oh, get out of the way! You you wreck off your dag!" And he's he's doing all that sort of stuff. And I'm pretty sure that you know he hits someone. So, you know, there's a little bit of collateral damage or potential collateral damage, and part of that comes from one of the big things that's different about this movie as opposed to your conventional American action movie, which is the setting. It's, you know, mm-hmm. set in Dhaka. Everything feels uh, strange to us. It feels, you know, really congested and there's loads of life in the streets and people driving tuk-tuks and scooters around and uh, and it just, it, it, for me, it feels very, very different from a John Wick mm-hmm. or from a from an Equalizer. Yeah, I think you get so much colour and bustle and life as a result of that. And obviously they didn't shoot in Bangladesh apart from some establishing shots because basically they did go, they did go and visit, they did kind of recce and the insurers went, lol, no. So they shot in <laughs> India partly, the, the runner was Indian, for example, and then they shot uh, a lot of the stuff, as I say, in Thailand. But yeah, it just gives you so much colour and bustle and life and stuff that we haven't seen a million times in the West. Um, obviously lots of Bollywood films, I'm sure, have used exactly mm-hmm the same uh, locations before but um but it did it give you it did give you a bit more texture and a bit more um interest visually because i think we get very used to these kind of you know there was that trend for orange and teal kind of action movies the sort of michael bay era there was the trend for this sort of john wicky and very cool gray colored action movies and atomic blonde was was similar to that and then this looks very very visually different I have to say I wasn't a huge fan of the extensive yellow filter. I felt like mm. that was a bit of quite a bit of a cliche and it's it would be interesting to see a film like a, a western film set in somewhere like Dhaka and have it not have them not have to go let's put a yellow filter on everything so that we so that we know it's Asia. Um it feels like a bit of a a, a cliche at, at this point. I think it was an interesting move to set it there a great move in some ways because it means you get a lot of um like indian and asian actors getting these roles in a major Mm -hmm. film big Mm -hmm. action film to know still at the stage where you have to have a chris hemsworth a sort of very prominent leading man still leading white sort of hollywood star to 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 get the film made but um i there were points where i felt like it's such an interesting setting that it felt like you could tell that they'd taken a premise that wasn't necessarily written for that setting and transplanted it to there. I just think if it was compared to something like The Raid or The Raid 2, where it it feels like it was written with that setting in mind, I didn't feel that here. And I think that was the case, that it was sort of a, a script mm. that Joe Russo sort of dusted off and gave it a zhuzh up and changed the location. Um, but I'm overall Hargrave glad they did actually, it because was yeah, it Hargrave, Hargrave who did that? Suggested right, the right. Location change, I think. Yeah, um, it was Blackpool initially, but uh, they decided to change. Because <laughs> filming in Blackpool is really expensive, really expensive. <laughs> the, uh, the lighting is is just a lot, you know. Yeah, it really is. But that's that's an interesting point about. I, I even raised this in my uh, review, the idea that uh, you know Rake could very easily succumb, and maybe people will argue that he does to white savior syndrome, uh, in a movie filled with Asian people. You, you know, it follows and is centered around this white guy saving the day for everybody. Do you think this movie gets around that? I mean, I guess the the answer 
to some degree, and I'm not saying it's to 100%, uh, to the white saviour thing is the character of Saju, who I think is a really, really interesting guy and, and in some ways has the most interesting arc in the film because mm-hmm. he's basically put in this impossible situation where his boss, Ovi's dad, tells him to get the kid back, but he knows he's not going to get the money he needs to hire these people. So he prepares this elaborate double cross on them to get them to do the heavy lifting that he can't do and then kill all of them because he figures he can do that. It's an interesting plan. I'm not sure it was ever that well-founded, but he was desperate, so fine. Um, But that's an interesting setup, I think, because he's not necessarily a bad guy, but he is the bad guy as far as as far as Tyler Reg's concerned, he's the guy who's killed the rest of his team. So it, it kind of gives us a bit more texture than we would necessarily have in a lot of these scripts in the past. Um, and I kind, of, I kind of enjoyed that. I thought that was really good. And I think um, Randeep Huda did a really, really good job with it. Yeah, I thought he was terrific. But I think in, in another universe, he's the lead and mm. Tyler Rake is the bad guy. And yeah. You know, this is a really interesting movie in that respect. I mean, what what you hope is that having somebody like Randy Puder playing opposite Chris Hemsworth here then opens the door up for him to lead Precisely. his own thing further down yeah. the line. Yeah. And yeah. if that's all for the greater good, then um, the then good. the greater yeah, good. it's it, it's worth it. I think um, the the part of my brain I had to switch off was the same bit I have to switch off sometimes in John Wick movies where it's like when big action scenes are happening in the crowd in a crowd of people or there's there's sort of civilians everywhere I have to switch on the part of my brain that goes John Wick knows who exactly who is evil and exactly who's mm-hmm. not and he mm-hmm. only picks off the bad people because you get a lot of these <laughs> you get a lot of these really sprawling action sequences and he looks at somebody for the, a split second and murders the hell out of them and you just have to go he knows who's good he knows who's he's bad very trained. it's a yeah. very very like built in mm-hmm. instinct exactly he's got a naughty list and a night li- nice list and the naughty <laughs> list is really really long do you know what it's like it's like the training exercise in men in black where Mm. the other trainees are blasting all the innocent aliens like all over the place and Mm. and it's only will smith who looks and he sees that the tiny little girl who looks adorable is the real bad guy here that's yeah, she's what's reading. Is it like what's she reading? It's like Stephen nuclear Hawking physics or something. Or something right? yeah. Let's move on to the question, which kind of pertains to what we've been talking about from at Mika Peaches on Twitter, and uh, she asks, "I was wondering what the gang's opinions uh, are on the yellow filter controversy. Some have called out the movie for following the trope of using a yellow filter to depict often less developed nations. The situation is complex, and there's a lot behind it. Whilst it's perhaps not necessarily done on purpose or with any malicious intent, maybe the fact it does come naturally to filmmakers." it's more reason for it to be talked about I don't know where I fall exactly just interested in hearing your opinion says Mika what do you what do you guys think Ben you've already um, said you're kind of against yeah like it. I said it just it feels like a like a an outdated visual shorthand mm-hmm. um, and I, I think I've been vaguely aware of that conversation happening as well in a sort of um uh, truthful but fairly glib sort of internet video and it was like somebody uh, I can't remember exactly where it was I think it was a country in the Middle East or in Asia somewhere that just was filming their local neighborhood and said what my neighborhood is actually like and then here's my neighborhood if it was in a Hollywood film and they put a yellow filter on it and it did feel truthful and I, I couldn't help but think of that while watching this I think these countries are so I don't know visually vibrant that it also feels sort of disappointing to put so much of a strong colour filter on on any city that it just becomes it makes it just feel like a a cliched environment rather than actively showing off somewhere that, that is probably quite visually distinctive. I wonder if 
partly it was down to the fact that they were shooting in two different countries and trying mm. to sort of visually tie the two locations together. Yeah. Um, as well as obviously the film set in a single day and they're shooting over, I don't know how many weeks it was. Um, so I imagine there might have been an element of just trying to, you know, tie everything up, make it look coherent, make it look like the same place on the same day and yes make it look like it's hot and dusty which it yeah. absolutely was i can tell you in thailand <laughs> so there there may be some mitigating factors to to the decision i think because i think it is it is quite difficult when you're when you've a film set over such a short period of time which is almost all outdoors and mm. you're trying to just make that work no, I can see that there would probably be very, very valid reasons and continuity and the way that these films get made. Mm. I think now that that conversation is happening and that yeah. there is more awareness over over that being a sort of a stereotype and a potential issue, it'd be interesting to see filmmakers maybe trying to gravitate away from that or find find, find different solutions solution, in the future. Yeah. I don't know necessarily that this is about depicting a foreign country. I think it's just about trying to depict heat. Um, mm. And you know, Steven Soderbergh did the same thing in Traffic, where he color coded locations, uh, you know, almost mm. based on temperature. So the Mexico scenes were yellow, way more yellow than this. You know, mm. it was almost Dick Tracy yellow in, <laughs> in in Traffic, and the scenes in Washington were blue, and then there were other scenes that were were kind of just desaturated in some way you know this is more in the, in the school of tony scott as well who would just mm -hmm. slap an orange filter and things because it looked cool <laughs> um but listen you know i i don't think there's any hostile intent on on the part of the filmmakers here but i can absolutely see that it's a conversation worth having uh, here's a question from at cantona's ghost do you think the recent promotion of former stunt performers to directors has improved the overall standard of action-based films so we're talking about the Chaz Tehelskis and the David Leaches of this world. Yes. Okay, moving on. <laughs> I mean, I think what it shows is that, like, in these specific cases, especially Stahelski and David Leach and now Sam Hargrave, you can see that they, they have a capacity to be perfectly solid directors who also know how to do exceptional action acquisequences <laughs> action I mean, sequences. Also, yeah. yeah, I mean, there is, there is the lake moment we've talked about. Um, yeah, what's interesting as well is that these guys know how to choreograph action, but they also, through their experience, know how to shoot action and shoot action around choreography. And cut um, action. This is important yes. as well. Yeah, the pacing yeah. of stuff yeah. is, is really um, effective as well. I mean, I'd like to see more of it, especially... Um, do, did Sam Hargrave do some uh, second AD stuff on Avengers? He was second unit on Endgame, second unit director in Endgame, but he's kind of worked his way up. Uh, so he's obviously still pulling stunt double duty Mm -hmm. on some of the Avengers stuff as well but he's worked his way up from you know just being a stunt guy to stunt choreography fight choreography and then obviously second unit director in Endgame which mm -hmm. is a big big deal big deal yeah massive yeah um, but yeah I'd see more of that yeah, yeah. So, so you can see there that the Russos would trust him and you know they would, they, they've seen what he can do with action sequences and one of the things you know not to turn this into another Avengers Endgame <laughs> spoiler special but one of the interesting things about those movies is how clear and crisp the action is you know i, I still remember the, the the day that barry jenkins sent film twitter into meltdown by praising the russo brothers 
chops for handling the uh, the climax of Endgame and making sure that everything was 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 understandable which mm-hmm. is <laughs> it seems like a, it's it's such an easy thing to say but it's such a difficult thing to do in action to establish ge- geography and clarity yeah. of geography and 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 where everybody is in relation to everybody else it's very very difficult and so many action filmmakers fuck it up so badly mm-hmm. you know michael bay is one such he's michael bay action sequences are incoherent even even in the good movies they're incoherent the car chase in the rock is a movie i love but the car chase in the rock is shite you've no idea what the hell is going on or where the characters are in relation to each other it's awful whereas you know nowadays we have we have these guys we have Stahelski we have Leech we have Sam Hargrave who I think shows a lot of promise here mm-hmm. uh, we have you know the Russos aren't stunt, stuntmen but you know they, they who understand spatial awareness Gareth Evans they understand things like that uh, and makes it a much easier watch George Miller of Christ yeah. of course yeah I think so too I think they're even when they don't have an action man who can do everything for himself in the lead, you know, they still know how far they can push it, how far they can go, what ang- camera angles they can set up to get as much as possible in each shot so that they're not doing the sort of late career Steven Seagal kind of chop, 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 chop to make it look like he can do <laughs> Liam Neeson taking 17 Neeson cuts to jump a fence, a fence and taking three. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And I think these guys have just such a better grip of what's possible. But what was interesting on set uh, was that uh, not just Chris Hemsworth, but especially Chris Hemsworth, were really paying tribute to Sam Hargrave's kind of dramatic chops as well. And the fact that he he felt natural with the with the dramatic scenes and he was he was comfortable with those and he wasn't sort of, you know, panicking and there in a sweat in the corner waiting for somebody to punch someone again. Um, <laughs> so I think, you know, I think a lot of that is... Maybe it's like comedy. Maybe it's the, the timing of the action stuff is very difficult looking if you're an outsider. But if you know what you're doing with that, you can probably handle dialogue and drama pretty well. Uh, what was the scene you saw being shot, by the way? I saw an action scene. It's sort of in the lead up to him uh, crossing the bridge. So it's part of that. And he's coming out of a building, basically firing his way downstairs. I'm not sure the exact shot I saw being filmed was actually in the film. But oh no, me. that sucks. I know, but no, but I was there for a couple. Of, so, so the one I was slightly further away for, I think, was was okay. there in that sequence. It's always nice whenever uh, just to share this with listeners for a second. It's always nice when you're on, you know, obviously you're on set for a day, sometimes a couple of days, sometimes a few days if you're very very lucky, and we see like a very small portion of movies being filmed uh, in, in the finished product. But it's always nice when you see the shot that you run a set for. The shot, yes. You always, you always nudge the person next to you and go, yeah. I saw that being shot as it if makes you were somehow s- responsible for it. It makes you so popular with your cinema-going companions. They just I stand up and through a, through a loud header, I was on set for this bit. Why have you got a Bane you know, mask so all of a sudden? <laughs> I was so close to being on set. I've just realised this now for Cap's entrance in Infinity War. I was so no. close. They must have they must have filmed that whilst we were in a room waiting for Paul Bettany and Elizabeth Olsen to appear to, to for an interview. Oh. They must have done. Motherfucker. Because I was on for um, in Edinburgh for uh, Chris Evans' first day. And they must have filmed that that day. They must have done. Motherfuckers. <laughs> Anyway, here's a question from at L. Carius. I loved Extraction. Thank you. On to the next question. Uh, I reckon Chris H. would be an excellent Jack Reacher. And by Chris H., of course, he means Hemsworth. Yes, I think he would, actually. I think he'd be quite... Well, I mean, Reacher is maybe not known for his sense of humour, so he might be overqualified in that respect. Although in this one, he barely says anything, so he's good at saying nothing in uh, in Extraction. (laughs) That's true, that's true. 
Hemsworth um, said nothing, indeed. Um, I think he's just, he's, he's a bit too small. He could play Jack Reacher's leg, perhaps. I mean, given that the last person to play him on the big screen was Tom Cruise, Chris, I think that ship about? has sailed. <laughs> we, what don't you mean? He's eight feet tall if he's a day. No, Hemsworth's a, a good shout because he's, what, 6'3"? Mm. Yeah, I think so. You know, I don't think you're going to get that reacher. I don't think you're going to get the the big six foot five. You know, whose 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 uh, arms described as the size of supermarket hams and his hands are the size of turkeys. Uh, I don't I don't think you're going to get that. The man whose chest Jack is reacher. so hard he he literally stops bullets with his chest muscle. No, no, no. This is this is this is not entirely accurate. It's the not. Bullet goes not into accurate. his chest. The bullet, mm-hmm. the bullet goes into his chest and he it is does. in a coma for weeks afterwards. Uh, yes. But yes, the, but. the density of his pectoral muscles are Thank such mm-hmm. that he does slow down the bullet uh, and <laughs> therefore... St- <laughs> You're saying his muscle sort of like grabs it and stops it in action? Yeah. No, it's like it's he has layers. The, the density of his muscles is such that the bullet oh. kind of goes... And just can't burrow through. Also, it's not like a high caliber bullet. It's a little teeny. Yeah, it's a light, it is a, a, yeah, it is a, a little teeny. Twenty two or something. Yeah, yeah. twenty two caliber or something like that. Anyway, but it's. I mean, it's not you know far off. I need to reread those books and find all the ridiculous bits. I'm way ahead of you. <laughs> on my umpteenth reread of the Reacher novels. Anyway, here's another question. This comes from at Ian Donegan. Uh, James on the regular podcast mentioned that this kind of cold open is a bit overdone. Mm. So what we mean by that is the film starts in media res, and what we mean by that is that the film starts in the, in the middle of the action, essentially, and um, and so we start at the end, and then it's kind of like one of those needle-scratch things where you go, Hi, I'm Tyler Rake, and you're probably wondering how I got myself into this situation, stranded on a bridge in, in Dhaka, being shot at by a sniper. And then, of course, we go back and we see... How that's all how it how we, how it comes to pass. Um, mm-hmm. I do feel that's a little bit passe now. I wonder. It's a it's a little bit TV. There are a lot of TV shows that use that device. I mean, Alias was notorious for it. Supernatural does it more than I'd like. Um, but it's very 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 common on TV where you you set up this apparently impossible situation where our heroes are definitely going to die, and then go forty eight hours earlier, and they're like la la la. I thought I'd get coffee. Would you like to join me? And then everything goes to shit. So, you know, it's it is a massive cliche and it's not my favorite device. I'm not sure if there was another fast-paced way of starting this unless you start him on a, some kind of previous mission, or, you know, you show him taking down previous bad guys. But then uh does that first of all it adds a lot to the budget and then does that kind of set up Tyler Rake a little bit before you need him because we kind of start with Ovi and the kidnapping this way. Mm. Um, I mean, it, for me, it didn't really add anything going in this way. I think there wasn't that much of a really punchy action sequence to kick it off with that I thought, mm. oh, they've done this so that we literally start with all our action and then we get to the sort of slower setup. Um, so I thought it was a slightly strange way in. I also think it didn't necessarily establish like, oh, he is absolutely fucked here and is, is going to take a lot to get him out of this situation. I think, yeah, I don't know. It just fun. felt like he was in the middle of a shootout and he got he was already like bleeding everywhere and he got nicked by another bullet was the was yeah. the feeling that i got um rather than know, it, like it this is like his a, last stand it mm. seemed like a pretty 
pivotal bullet. It mm. seemed like you know we could hear the whistle of it off screen, so it mm. it, it felt like a sniper rifle. Um, it's interesting how you know the guy shoots, he blows Saji's brains out, but he only shoots uh, Drake in the arm. But you know maybe he was just he, maybe his finger slipped, maybe he was nervous. Who knows? Chris, as you know from the Reacher books, it's very difficult to shoot someone at that kind of distance. There are so many factors that come into play. I mean, not to diss Equalizer Two because it is the 57th greatest movie ever made. But sure. the end of that movie has um, the, the movie's bad guy, whose mm-hmm. who's identity I will not reveal for people who won't be able to work it out after, <laughs> after five minutes of watching that movie. But it has the movie's bad guy on top of a tower in the middle of a hurricane. Uh, and he is still tracking Denzel and tracking this car, which is just a parked car. And he's like, he's like talking to Denzel over, over the headset. And he's firing bullets from the sniper rifle at this car and firing bullets at Denzel. And I'm just think, thinking, that, look at the wind, mate. I know. There's no wind way. Shear, There's no way. There's mm. no way you're making that shot. If Reacher's taught me one thing, he's taught me that. I mean, Reacher's taught us so many things. The history of So boots. many things. I have learned so much, <laughs> so much from Reacher. Most of it bullshit. <laughs> the, the history of boots, did you say? Yes, the as boots, in Boots yes. the Chemist. The, yeah. the, the chemist of, from yes. Nottingham. Yeah. Yes. Source in of book. local pride. In book 19, Personal, he goes to London and he uh, he lectures the, the lady that he is with uh, on the history of Boots the Chemist, uh, all of which Lee Child has admitted he just made up on the spot. Wait, so he didn't, he didn't say that, did he say that it was from Nottingham? It's a Nottingham uh, company. No, I don't believe he did. I don't believe he did. I've got the book behind me. Oh. I could go and fetch it and find the passage I, and read it out to you, but... I just I need to know, Nottingham Brown. doesn't have we'd that have to, many we'd, things. We have, we, have, we have Robin Hood, we have Torval and Dean, and we have Boots. Oh, who No, 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 you've got, you got restaurant Sat Baines. we got Sat Baines. You've got two yeah, yeah. Michelin star restaurant, restaurant Sat Baines. RestaurantSatBaines.com for all your great two Michelin star needs. Use the offer code Empire Podcast. Oh man, I wish. If I only. wish we could do that. Imagine if we had a partnership with restaurant Sat Baines. Ooh. Anyway. Although if I had to partner with a Nottingham restaurant, it would be Annie's Burger Shack. Primo, <laughs> primo burgers. Okay, so a couple of last questions, then we're in the home stretch. This one, uh, two questions actually. Cheeky. Uh, it's like being at a QA. Uh, more of a comment than a question, really, from <laughs> R. Pat's Yao, uh, who asks, Why did the kidnappers agree to have a big muscular Australian make the transaction instead of a member of Ovi's family? I was flabbergasted when Rake was suddenly at the kidnappers' hideout, palling it up. Okay, I'm, I'm not sure he was being very pally. I think they would have maybe expected a sort of intermediary of some sort. And probably the people who picked him up were not of a level of seniority to turn their noses up at whoever turned up, I guess. Is there are is- intermediaries in this world, aren't there? There are people, it's like the Russell Crowe character in, in Proof of Life. There are people mm. who's literally, whose jobs it is to, to do this, to, yeah. to be the go-between in kidnapping cases, which is crazy as that sounds. Mm. I was going to say, was it a situation where they thought this is this is going to go south, probably? So we need somebody in there that, when it does go south, he can fight his way out and hopefully keep Ovi alive, rather than having a negotiator who couldn't swing a rake at a single person, let alone <laughs> well, two. It's um, not just that. It's if it's one of those situations where if you have kidnapped Ovi and then another member of Ovi's family turns up, 
You're just going to kidnap them too. It's just like, oh, thank you very much for bringing us another victim. Now collect we want the whole double set. the ransom. Yeah, collect, yeah. Send so in another I think, one. I think that's why they have intermediaries in this case. But also they don't expect that even as big and muscular as this Aussie is, they don't expect that he will single-handedly take out a room full of, what, 10 dudes? Mm-hmm. You know, but um, so I, I'm, I don't have as big a problem with that as uh, Pat's Yao, no. uh, but not as big a problem uh, as Arpat's Yao has with Sam Hargrave's cameo. He asks, oh. was it the most self-indulgent cameo in movie history? Whilst watching, I was wondering why Rake and others were so heartbroken over the death of Man Bun. That's harsh. <laughs> harsh. That's fucking harsh. harsh. After not having established any particular relationship. He has established a bit of a reliance on him. Like they've had a little bit of interaction at least which I thought was good um, and you need to have some kind of sense that he's worked with these people before not just Nick uh, I don't think it's close to the most self-indulgent director cameo I don't know if you're aware of a guy called Quentin Tarantino for example um, <laughs> Django and Chains <laughs> yeah so I mean this yeah. is this is not even top 10 dude this is like way 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 down the list yeah uh, in fact I don't think it's self-indulgent at all I think you know he's he he's a uh, guy who can handle himself he looks like that why not yep. stick yourself in the movie and you know he gets he gets he gets taken out too early I think for it to be self-indulgent yeah. if he was heroically saving Rake every five minutes and <laughs> looking at the camera whilst ripping his shirt off to reveal glistening man pecs then perhaps Holly, you've been be reading my fanfic <laughs> <laughs> this is why Helen didn't go back for a second set visit the restraining order had kicked in by then um, but also um, he's I would also say he's hidden behind his production beard for it so it's not even like he looks like he normally looks um he basically started growing that i think while they were basically once they finished work on avengers and didn't i think cut it until he'd finished um shooting certainly if not editing the movie so he he does not look like he normally looks in that cameo speaking of other roles um sorry to change the subject we haven't talked yet about the david harbour character who was just a what a dick what a dick (laughs) I um I feel like they didn't necessarily spend enough time with that character to do the big turnaround that they needed to do from him being like, "Hey, come with me. It's lovely to see you. Let's kill the boy now." I mean, I felt I, I, that subplot doesn't didn't really work for me. How did you guys feel about that character and and that sort of ten minutes of the movie? I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think we all saw a double cross coming, mm. didn't we? I mean, that was pretty mm. much there, but. What I liked was that they did give him a little bit of reason for it, if you like. I mean, he's like he's the first guy, if you if you listen back, he's the first guy that Tyler asks about. It's like, why isn't Gaspar doing this? And they're like, oh, no, he's out of the game. And then they basically, she and Nick advises him not to call Gaspar when he says he's going to. Um, so there is this sense of don't go there. He's out. He's not involved anymore. He's not one of us. Um, and then he does anyway. So... I, I think there's an element of him maybe not being terribly wise in, in calling this guy. Um, I don't think maybe. he's any choice, really. Mm. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't think he does either, but, you yeah. know, it's still it a can, risk. I think he knows that. Yeah, it convincingly backs him into a corner. Mm. Uh, I think we said this to Sam Hargrave in the interview. I haven't got back and listened to it yet. I'm going to edit it, uh, edit it after this, obviously. But I think we said it to Sam Hargrave that we were expecting the, the double cross. And I think maybe as a director, he didn't like that, that maybe he thought there was maybe a little bit more open to interpretation than, than that. 
But for me, there's only really one way that it goes from the minute mm. David Harbour walks on, on screen. Um, and maybe David Harbour has a different... I mean, the, the David Harbour I first saw in movies was the guy who would play creepy killers in things like <laughs> Walk Among the Tombstones and whatnot. And now he's a little bit more funkular. He's a little bit more friendly as a, as a persona and as a presence because of things like Stranger Things. Mm. So perhaps they're hoping that, it'll, that 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 comes into play and people will go, oh, there's no way that Thor and Hellboy will possibly have a fight. <laughs> that they're going to be friends. But for me, I was just waiting for the, the other shoe to drop or not to drop because he, he's not wearing shoes at the end, is he? So um, <laughs> as much as I like the action in this movie, I think the plot is fairly perfunctory. And I think that there, there aren't really any twists or revelations that you don't see coming yeah like the um when, when rake gets killed at the end well not killed sorry that's a bit twist you don't see coming i guess <laughs> he, gets, he gets shot like 10 times and falls 200 feet into a into a river and some somehow lives maybe and uh but even the thing at the end the shot at the end where he actually gets shot in the neck by by uh, farhad you see that coming as well because of the way that it's set up mm-hmm. beforehand with the the look at at Nick at you know the sense that oh everything's done I've killed everybody in Bangladesh it seems and now finally I can relax oh no Benny Blanco from the Bronx I'm dead so I just wonder and I don't know what you could do about that I don't know you know whether it's something in the mm-hmm. editing whether you trim the 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 length of of shot down from from Rake looking at Nick to being shot in the neck. I don't know what you can do to, you know, to get around that. But uh, mm. I, I, I did feel that it was fairly predictable. I think yeah, the main we- thing I admired plot-wise was um, was the Saju plot, where I thought it was quite a nice twist that he obviously then turns on Rake for a very legitimate reason. That was his plan all along. And then they eventually team up to, to mm. sort of um, head into the end game. No sort of pun intended huh. I thought that that was a side of the plot that I didn't necessarily expect going in but I think there are lots of other elements that did just feel very familiar or like yeah. you said the, the way that they stage certain sequences the, the staging of it tells you what's going to happen just before it happens yeah. I feel like the I think they thought this, the twist in the David Harbour sequence the Gaspar sequence was that it was Ovi who ultimately shoots him and not Rake yeah, but I, yeah. I, I wonder if there was a different way out of that sequence for them like if they could have had if they could have set Gaspar up as an obvious double crosser and then somehow not had him actually double cross them, you know, if they'd done something like that, I think that might have been a bit more satisfying. Yeah, although yeah, you're right. The the Ovi twist at the end is is interesting. He he does kick Rake's ass from you mm-hmm. know, but then again, Rake is drunk and has got loads of painkillers, and I like that as well. And it showed the degradation of, of Rake in a very mm-hmm. realistic way. That he was he did have a broken arm and he was you know, fighting through the pain barrier and, and then some. Um, but yeah, I thought maybe you could have had a, a couple, maybe a, maybe just a couple more twists uh, towards the end. Like the, the Farhad thing as well. The, min- the minute that he kind of slaps him. And it's were, an interesting storyline. Yeah. I think the idea mm. that this kid, his life is so horrible that he, you know, he wants in on the gangster life because even though it's fraught with danger and he has to give up fingers and whatnot, that is still better than the alternative. Um, and he, and the, the fact that he kind of idolizes or hero worships this this horrendous drug dealer, that's quite interesting. Mm. But I also was waiting for that to come back to bite Rake on the ass. Yeah, I wonder if it would have been more interesting because I saw it maybe setting up something a little bit different with Farhad and, and having him. He didn't seem that 
drawn to Amir initially. He didn't seem, he seemed very, very wary initially. Like when that first scene with them where he goes, oh, the guy with the information you wanted is the guy you just threw off the, the roof. I thought, well, that's quite clever, actually. That's protecting the other kids that are up there with you um, and, and you know, turning his attention from them and, and hopefully stopping the, the kind of the massacre mm-hmm. that seems to be shaping up on that rooftop. So I thought he was going to go into it as a sort of reluctant foot soldier um, and and I kind of maybe would have preferred that, although maybe that's a cliche as well. Maybe that's been done as well. I don't know. Um, but it, it it does feel like maybe there would be a bit more nuance to play there. And maybe there could have been a relationship between him and Ovi that might have helped him across the bridge at the end or something, you know. Interesting, interesting. Uh, so just a couple of last questions and then we're, we'll wrap this up. Uh, speaking of uh, <laughs> that scene where he belts uh, Farhad around the face, uh, you're going to need a bigger boat. Uh, our good old friends at Film Underscore Quiz, they do an incredible film quiz if you're ever in London, by the way. Uh, they've asked, what other films feature the hero beating the shit, deservedly so, out of children? Uh, my go-to uh, would be the end of Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, where they go around to everybody who's chatted shit about them on the internet and beat them up <laughs> in an epic montage. And it's mostly children. It's mostly children on the internet. <laughs> How many people want to kick some ass? <laughs> like going around slapping the kids around. It's great. How worried should we be that you have a go-to answer for that? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's weird. Well, I, I rank my DVDs by genre. Uh, so there's there's action, there's horror comedy that segues into comedy horror, and then there's the people beating up kids section. So, obviously, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Okay. Mm. I am going to mention very, very quickly, I know there's going to be loads more that I'm missing, but just off the top of my head, due date, uh, the mm. great Robert Downey Jr., Todd Phillips, Sack Galifianakis comedy uh, features Downey, who is a frankly reprehensible character in that movie, uh, which is perhaps why I think it's so funny, uh, punches a kid. Like an eight-year-old kid who's oh, just been an absolute dick to him. And in fairness, he's been an absolute dick, so he deserves the punch. And then there is, of course, the end of Step Brothers, where John C. Riley yeah. and Will Ferrell turn up in a playground and uh, lay down the law on a group of kids who earlier in the film beat them up and made them like lick white dog poo and whatnot <laughs> and there's the great shot one uh, where they're on a roundabout and they're both the roundabout spinning around and they're punching a bunch of kids as the as the roundabout moves around it's um very very funny but we at the empire podcast we would like to be known that uh, we do not condone no the, this so. course of action unless and i cannot stress this enough it's funny no, Chris, again, well, as your lawyer. <laughs> what? No, 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 no. That's, not, that's not the exception. No. Sorry. Okay. No. Yeah. Thing. no. So let me just get this right. Punching kids, Helen, you're saying is just bad. Is just bad. That's correct. Yes. Even if that. you have comedy on your side. Yes, that's that's the case. Yes. It is. As in, yes, it is still a no. All right. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to take it under advisement. I mean, it, it does say a lot that the only other examples we could think of are all comedies. I kind of admire this film. This is that's the thing. I wish that this film maybe had just a little bit of that extra sensibility, where a bit of knowingness about the fact that you've got your action hero and he's having to be up a bunch of admittedly very deadly children. I, I did like that he sort of changed up his fighting style. He was very much like slapping them out of the way. It was a lot of slaps and like yes. sort of forcibly pushing them into cars and out of the way. Um, so he wasn't like going as hard on them as he did yeah. with uh, every, every, absolutely everybody else in uh, in Bangladesh. Yeah, he sees him as sort of insignificant 
bugs, doesn't he? He's like mm. kind of even appalled that they're even trying to take him on. It's like, don't you know who I am? I'm Tyler Goddamn Rake, you motherfuckers. <laughs> uh, and he just smacks him. And then, of course, it comes back to bite him on the ass or shoot him in the neck, one, one of the two. Mm. But uh, uh, I don't know. I, I'd be off for that. Rake just punching kids. Um, no, Chris. No, no, I... Mm-mm. Hard pass. Yeah, I've just looked up on the... Uh, yes, it's bad. It's bad. Uh, I went to ispunchingkidsbad.com and it says yes. So, moving on. <laughs> Last question. Uh, talking about this idea of fun and checking it in the movie, it's not really a question. This is literally more of a comma than a question. Uh, from Real J. McLeod on Twitter. Uh, you all mentioned in your review how much fun you thought this film was. Did we? <laughs> <laughs> Did we? I don't remember that, but okay. Whereas my major problem with it was how much of a slog it seemed. Whilst technically amazing, it left me cold, having none of the wit or flair of John Wick or even the opening episode of Gangs of London. Uh, I really wanted to like Extraction, but couldn't for all of us technical class. So I think this is interesting just in terms of what we perceive as fun <laughs> when it regard, in regards to an action movie. Mm. And for me... If an action movie has inc- really good action sequences, that uh, you know, this is fun in the way that the raid is fun. And mm-hmm. you know, some of the um, some of the early exchanges between uh, Rake when he's fighting the corrupt the corrupt cops uh, in the uh, in the Wonner, or when he's fighting against um, Saju, is fun in a kind of oh e oh did you see that Very oh much. that was yeah. an impressive move kind of way. That's fun. I, I don't mm-hmm. mean it's fun in the oh my god my sides are splitting kind of way. No, exactly. My sides are hurting in sympathy more than my sides are splitting, I think is the correct answer. And I think it's it's fun for me in an action movie is, is a function of pace, which I think this has. And again, delivering on those action beats and delivering things I haven't seen before and that take me aback and make me go... Uh, is always a good thing. <laughs> I, I think slog is a very harsh word. I, I have slight reservations about the fact that the the amazing Warner is the highlight of the film for me, and you get that about forty minutes in when there's still, pro- by the time that's over, you've probably still got over an hour of the film left. And I wonder if you take if you put your best action sequence actually in the second half of the film is maybe a slightly better move. But I mean, it, it sits where it needs to sit in the story. I guess that's um, not necessarily something you can easily change around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think there is room to have more fun in the second one, like crank it up literally he was dead but he got better rake to like <laughs> give us a, a little bit of extra sugar in there but um just because you can see where things would be improved i think there's a lot to enjoy in this film and it, it's it's you get enjoyment and entertainment and find the fun in the quality of the action scenes and um yeah i think it is an exciting movie overall oh my god now we should do a retro spoiler special for crank and crank too <laughs> can you imagine yes. You laugh, but it's on my long list. Hey. Of, of, it's on my it's on my dream wish list. <laughs> you know, if we could get Nevelina Taylor to to hop on Squadcast and and talk us through those two absolute slabs of insanity, then <laughs> that would be a, a good day indeed. But uh, but we shall see what happens in the future. Uh, right now, that is it for this spoiler special for our extraction spoiler special. Perhaps one day down the line, we'll be back to talk about the return of Tyler Rake. Um, you know, and his miraculous recovery from <laughs> what looked like pretty certain death. Uh, <laughs> Extraction to insertion? That's got a to oh, be no. weird, clinically mm-hmm. sexy vibe. <laughs> Sounds like a very different film. 
Yeah, that's the uh, the breaking news noise that I have bought at great expense, which means that uh, my faffing around with the edit of the Extraction Spoiler Special has worked in our favour uh, <laughs> for once, because in the time it took me to get the bloody thing edited, uh, they announced officially last night on Star Wars Day, trying to steal some of Star Wars thunder, eh, guys? Uh, they announced that Joe Russo is has signed a deal to write the script for Extraction 2, and that I'm pretty sure... Tyler Rake is going to come back. Uh, whether, of course, he brings his mate Keith Dildo is, remains no, to be seen, Chris. but Tyler Rake is coming back. And I presume this is going to be a sequel, which means that it was him at the end of the film, definitively. Not necessarily. They have specifically said, in fact, Joe Russo specifically said that he's not committing yet to whether the story goes forward or backward in time. So it could be a prequel, but let's hope not because prequels suck. Um, and it would be better if it were indeed yes. a sequel. Um, because none of us really believe he's dead now, despite the fact that he's super dead um, by the laws of, you know, nature and medicine. Um, so, yeah, um, obviously Hemsworth is yet to sign up, but apparently they're aiming to bring him back and Sam Hargrave as well, which I think is, is good news. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm here for this. I'm up for this. I kind of want them to go somewhere different and new and exciting that I haven't maybe seen a million times. But then we haven't seen very many films in that part of Northern Australia. Um, where he's living at the start yeah. of this film. So I would be up for just, you know, some pe- bad guys try and come and kill him at home. And, you know, he has to, you know, use all of his DIY equipment to save the day. So like a mix between Crocodile Dundee 2 and The Equalizer is basically what you've just pitched there. And I'm, I'm here that for is, that. Yeah, I thought that would appeal to you. Yeah, I'm, I'm worried by the Crocodile Dundee 2 comparisons, but I feel like Australian action cinema has to get beyond that at some point. You should well. You can't. You can't get beyond the pinnacle. That's that's the whole thing. It's you know once you once you hit the peak, then it's, everything's downhill after there. Everything's downhill. You know everything. And I mean, I'm including Mad Max for your road in terms of Australian action cinema. Wow. You have Crocodile Dundee too. Wow. And then there's a long way down to Mad Max Hello? for your road. Hello, film Twitter. I'm sorry. I have a crime to report. Uh, ben, what do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, I feel like we we saw it coming. We discussed, didn't we? That that no matter if they actually say he's dead or whatever at the end, you have a massive hit Netflix film with Chris Hemsworth being a great action star with really good action that got a decent amount of traction. Like they're not not going to make another one. I think. Um, I just don't believe that that character's dead. They wouldn't put that little sting at the end if they had no plans whatsoever to open the possibility that he's uh, that he's sort of no longer with us so he was dead but he got better he was yeah. dead but he got better and like <laughs> we were talking about in the main episode I would love for them to sort of maybe just eat like shift the tone slightly make it a little bit more knowing a little bit more fun keep all of the sort of I don't know, loosen it up, but still take it seriously. I think um, it would be a really nice thing to do. Um, I'm just I have a new pitch. Yeah, go for it. Oh my god! Okay, Extraction Two versus Crank Three. (laughs) Right, so it loosens up and makes it a bit more self-aware, like Ben Mm -hmm. wants. Yep. Uh huh. And it brings in Chris's. He was dead, but he got better. This is a win-win. I see this as a complete win scenario. (laughs) I'm going to throw one more onto the pile here, Helen. Ooh, okay, bring it. Because, uh, okay, so you have Chev Chelios. I think we discussed this on the main episode a little bit. <laughs> but we have Chev Chelios and we have Tyler Rake. Mm-hmm. And they're teaming up together down under to stop the bad guys. Chev, mm-hmm. again, unfortunately, has an erection. There's nothing we can do about that. That's just how he rolls. Um, although it does make rolling quite difficult. But anyway, we won't get into the specifics. But uh, So they are fighting against the bad guys. All right? Okay. The bad guys 
attack their underground hideout and mm-hmm. they've got Tyler Rake at gunpoint. No. Tyler Rake pulls out his knife and no. then we hear from the shadows, that's not a knife. <laughs> no. That's a knife. They look what? around. Oh my God, it's Mick Dundee <laughs> played by Paul Hogan, who I'm assuming now is like in his 90s or something, but he's still got it. And he comes in and kicks the bad guy's asses and it's Chev Jelios and his troublesome boner it's Tyler Rake and his troublesome rake and Mick Dundee and his troublesome politics uh, and they're together at last for Extraction 2 Crocodile Dundee 5 (laughs) (laughs) after extra time well Joe Russo (laughs) has our number he knows where we are if he is struggling to write the script and he wants some help slide I mean, into our DMs. That's all I'm saying. I feel like I feel like this should put into context any problems he has with the script because now he'll know that no matter how bad it gets, he yes, could he never has, be this bad. He has, he has on his big board of post-it notes and he has a crocodile Dundee thing and he do not use and he has lots of other post-it notes pointing at it under any circumstances. Do not use this. Um, so yeah, I, I'm I'm all for this. I've said this. I said this. I, I said this in my review, but I definitely said it on the uh, on the main the main podcast that I'd be more than happy to watch Tyler Rake fuck shit up uh, again. And I hope, I, genuinely, I hope that he is alive. I hope that they they pull some mad mystical bullshit that the river he fell into was was full of medicine. <laughs> somehow, <laughs> somehow he got magically better again, and it's it's totally fine. But the time between him falling into the river. And showing up at the end, mm-hmm. that would allow him to recover from his fatal wounds. Totally. Very much so. He's you know, definitely fine. Look, that, that man had a literal broken back and then like hung himself from a rope for six months and he was fine. So That's, that's medically fine. sound advice. That's what you should um, do. As you your have. lawyer, Chris, as your lawyer, <laughs> that is not medically sound advice. This if you were true. concerned about that, people, please see your own doctor and not Chris. Thanks so much. But yeah, I'm very, very excited about this. And that is it for our brief Extraction 2 interruption. And now we return you to our regularly scheduled Extraction Spoiler Special Programming. That's the noise. On that glorious note, that is definitely it for our Extraction Spoiler Special. Keep in peel for more Spoiler Specials coming your way. Our last Mandalorian Spoiler Special is going to be hitting Chapter 8 of Season 1. That's it. No more Weekly Mando. Such a shame. Um, Our Picard Spoiler Special with Sir Patrick Stewart uh, will be up. uh, It should be up by the time you're listening to this, in fact. And the next Spoiler Special we're doing for a movie is, I think, if I've got my schedule right in my head, a retro Spoiler Special for Jack Reacher and that is with as you might imagine Christopher McQuarrie and yes as you might imagine it's a long one but uh, <laughs> but a good one nonetheless uh, and of course the regular Empire podcast is out every Friday if you don't already please do listen and subscribe to that as well right until we meet again until the auspicious occasion until then it is goodbye from Ben Travis goodbye uh, it is goodbye from Helen Goodbye. 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 Goodbye, Helen. And it's goodbye for me. Uh, I am off to go to the local park, get in a roundabout, and punch a bunch of kids in the face. No, Chris, again. No, I'm not. I'm Thank not. I'm Mainly not. because of social distancing rather than... <laughs> That's it. I'm being socially responsible. But the minute this is over, I am punching kids in the face, Helen, and there's not a goddamn no. thing you or your so-called laws can do to stop me. Uh, Thanks for listening. Is. See you next time. <laughs>
<laughs> Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs> so the court of the land we can fix. <laughs> All the courts of the land we can fix. Damn it! All of them. Uh, all right. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.